We'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. We began this morning our study, really, of, of this book. We're going to see the story of how a young Jewish girl becomes the queen of the Persian Empire. The book is unique, and, and let me tell you why. Because God is not mentioned in the book. You say, what? This is a book in the Bible, and God's not even mentioned. No, he's not. But we see the sovereignty and the providence of God weaving throughout there. The book, when you, when you think about it, I mentioned it earlier, but there's two things there. The next, I think next slide. There's two books. We just studied the book of Ruth, and it was the story of the Gentile, the Moabite Ruth, who married Boaz, and is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And now we meet Esther, who is a Jewish person who marries a Gentile, and essentially she marries the king of the Persian Empire, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, and we'll see how what happens there. And as we study this book, we're going to see the sovereignty of God. We're going to see how he works in the events of our lives. And I think there's some great things there as we go through it. You know, sometimes when we look at life and we see things that happen, we think they just happened. And we, we really look at sometimes and we say, this was good and this was bad. And sometimes things go wrong. Sometimes things aren't planned. And then we say, you know, there's accidents. You have an accident. Like if you trip and fall, you say, I accidentally fell. And we say that an accident is something that we didn't plan, we didn't know was going to happen, it just happens. But when you think biblically, there aren't any accidents. There aren't any accidents. There is no fate. There's no chance. There's no things out of control. Because God is in control. He is sovereign. And he works all the events according to the counsel of his will. We think about our lives. They're under the sovereign hand of God. And there aren't any accidents. And Ephesians chapter 1 says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we find in the book of Esther, as we study this book, uh, his providence and his sovereignty. And, And what we see in the book of Esther, God works in the events of life as he protects and deals with his people. This is a story, once again, of Jewish people. And they're in Persian Empire, and they're spread all over the world, but there's a possibility, because of one evil man, that all the Jewish people would be killed. What would have happened if some 500 years before Jesus was ever born, that all the Jewish people would be killed? Where would the Messiah come from? Messiah's got to come through King David, the Jewish people. We see this. He takes this young Jewish girl, raises her up to be the queen of of a Gentile empire, and uses her to save the Jewish people from destruction. So there's a lot. Here's what we're going to do. Start this morning. We're going to look at four things. First of all, we're going to get the background. We're going to look at the book of Esther and see how it fits in history. Then the second thing is we'll understand the theme and purposes of of the book. Then uh, the third thing, we'll become acquainted with the main characters. I mean, as we go through this, we're going to see some people. We see a couple this morning. We see a king by the name of Ahasuerus, which we'd say Xerxes, and we're going to meet this queen called Vashti, and we'll see her. And then the last thing is we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 1 we see the king throws a party and we'll go through that we've given you a card as we do for all our studies all of our studies uh, we have a card on one side it says Esther and it talks about the author we don't know who he is it gives the basic date it gives you some main uh, verses and the theme and then it gives you a big overview of the book so you can use this for your study on the back side is actually the outline of the book and we'll be going through this over these next few weeks the story is incredible if you've never studied Esther I mean, you know, when we looked at Ruth, and it took us six weeks to go through Ruth. It's not a very long book. And many people will come to me and say, you know, I never knew all that was in Ruth. Well, if you've never studied Esther, you're going to be amazed at what is in this book and what God does and how he works all things. And what you can say to yourself is, you know, God 
is in my life and he's protecting me and he's working through my life as well. Well, let's start. Let's get, let's get some background, okay? As we begin, we think about the book Esther is in what we call the history part of our Bible. In our Old Testament, there's basically the law, which is the first five books, then history, then the poetry, and then the prophets. Within the history section, it begins with Joshua and ends with Esther. That's the last book of the history section. And let's, let's get a flow of where this takes place in history. And most of you think about the Bible and you say, okay, about a thousand years before Jesus was born, there was a king that we all know. His name was King David. He's the greatest king of Israel. God actually promised King David that one of his descendants would be the Messiah and the king who would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And when we saw the book of Ruth, we saw the lineage of King David. We saw that in that book just a couple of weeks ago. Well, after David died... His son Solomon became the king. And Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. He wrote a whole bunch of things in the Bible. But Solomon sort of messed up toward the end and turned away from God. A lot of people don't know that. When he turned away from God and he died, the nation of Israel divided into two groups. The nation split. And ten tribes, there were twelve tribes, ten tribes went what they called to the north and called themselves the northern kingdom. And then there's two tribes that were the southern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom, and I think we got right here, the northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. It was called Judah because the two southern tribes were Judah and Benjamin, and they just called them Judah. And that, by the way, Judah is where you get the name Jews. Okay, Hebrews, we call them Hebrews because they crossed over the Tigris-Euphrates River. That's what Hebrew means. It means one who crosses over. They're sometimes called Israel because Jacob's other name was Israel. And God said, you'll no longer be called Jacob, you'll be called Israel. And so people who are descendants of Jacob are called Israelites. But then sometimes Jews, Jewish people are called Jews. And that's because from the tribe of Judah. So just think what happened. The nation divided. And what happened is both kingdoms did bad. The northern kingdom did real bad. The southern kingdom had some good kings, but as a whole, did bad. And God kept sending them prophets and saying, If you don't straighten up, I'm going to remove you from the land. And they didn't straighten up. And so what happened was this. In 721 B.C., the Assyrians came and took the northern empire off into captivity. And then, about a hundred years later, in 605 B.C., the Babylonians came in and took the southern empire off in, into captivity. And we call that the Babylonian captivity. And the book of Daniel and Ezekiel and some other... They're all, that all happened at that time. Now, here's something that was found in Jeremiah. He says, I'm going to take you into captivity. But Jeremiah 25.11 said, you'll be in captivity for 70 years years. And guess what happened? Exactly 70 years after they went into captivity, God brought in a new empire called the Medo-Persian Empire. And a king by the name of Darius and another king by the name of Cyrus came. And when they took over and they defeated the Babylonians, and for some reason Cyrus said, I don't know why, I have this idea that the Jews need to go back home and rebuild their temple and I'll even build it for them. And I'll give them a whole bunch of money to go. Where did that come from? It came from God. And so exactly 70 years after the captivity, the Jewish people went back. Or so we say. In fact, the truth is this. A small number of Jews went back. 
only, and if you read the records, only 50,000 Jewish people left the captivity that they had been in and went back home. And the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are the stories of the Jews who went back home. But guess what? The book of Esther is the story of the Jews who didn't go back home. So when we look at the book of Esther, the Jewish people aren't living in the land. They're living in what we call the Medo-Persian Empire, later became known as just the Persian Empire. So here's a question. Why wouldn't they go home? Why wouldn't Jewish people who had been in captivity for years, 70 years, why wouldn't they leave and say, let's go back to our land? Why? Well... It was easier to stay there. Why? They had their homes, they had their shops, they had their businesses. They were already living there. And second, to go back would be hard. It was a long journey and it was a wilderness and they got back there. Things were all torn to pieces. Somebody else may even be living in your house. You got to go back and take over and say, hey, this is our land. And so it would be much easier to stay. That's why a small number of Jewish people went back. So listen to this. This is going to sound funny. The book of Esther is the story of the disobedient Jewish people who didn't go back. See, they're supposed to go back to their land. It's the land God gave them, from beginning with Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and all the way down. This is their land. He even told them the dimensions. They're supposed to be in that land. That's why if you're concerned today about who is to possess the land of Israel today, is it the Palestinians, is it the Jewish people, what part, West Bank, Gaza Strip, it all belongs to the Jewish people promised by God. And they were supposed to go back, and they didn't. And so the story of Esther is Jewish people living in the Persian Empire who didn't go back. Well, we're going to see what God does. God takes care of them even when they're disobedient. And let me tell you something. Do we do right all the time? No. Does God take care of us even when we don't do right? The answer is yes loves us. Now, let's look at the second question. That's the background of that. Second, what's the theme? What's the purpose of the book? Well, as we study this book, it is very clear, and here's what it is. God works in the lives of his people. We see the sovereignty and the providence of God. We see how God takes care of his people. Now, remember the prophecy, and the, it said that God, this is God's people. He chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, they were his people. They are his people to this day. Now, because he chose them doesn't mean they're saved. Okay? He chose them for a purpose. It was to give us the scripture and to bring the Messiah. Salvation is not corporate. They, every individual Jewish person must believe in the Messiah. But he chose them. And if you said, are the Jewish people God's chosen people? The answer is, yes, they have been and they always will be. That doesn't save anyone of them. We're saved by faith. And every Jewish person must believe in the coming Messiah. That's talking about Old Testament. Right now, if you had a Jewish friend, a person who says, well, I'm Jewish, how are they saved? They're saved because they put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah and Savior. Same way for us. But God chose these people and he said that they will always be my people he said if you could change uh, all of the rules of of the universe and no sun and moon and stars then they wouldn't be jews he said but they'll always be my people we see the hope and the protection 
and we see how it works. Now, remember this. There's this young Jewish girl, and she's beautiful. We call her Esther. And we'll tell you how we know she's beautiful, because it says she's beautiful. What are the chances, out of all of the young, beautiful girls in an empire that stretches 127 provinces, stretches all the way to India, Ethiopia, and all of what we call the Middle East, all of what we'd call Iran, Iraq, all of that part of the world today, what are the chances one girl would get picked to be the queen? What are the chances of that? Some people say, lucky. I remember J. Vernon McGee said, some would say, boy, she was lucky to be chosen as queen. There's no such thing as luck. God is in control. We see the providence of God. We see the direction of God. We see how God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's working in your life. You have freedom. You can choose to do right. You can choose to do wrong. You can choose to come to church, not come to church. You can read your Bible. You cannot read your Bible. You can go to work. You can, you can do all things. But behind it all, your God is working all things. There is no chance or fate or luck. God is in control. It is often said this, that sovereignty is his control and providence is his outworking of his control. As J. Vernon McGee would say, that it's God's hand in the glove of human events. So, do you feel pretty good? I feel great. If you go out and you got a flat tire, you can't go, oh, but a bad look. Now you say, okay, thank you, Lord. I don't understand it, but thank you so much for the flat tire, right? He may just not want you to be at a place at the wrong time in the wrong place. He's taking care of you. We're going to see this. God works in the affairs of all nations and all peoples. So the theme and the purpose is his protection. And let's just say it this way. It's the protection of the nation of Israel. That's what the book is about. But we can make an application that he's protecting us. It is comfort. It is comforting to know that God is working even when we can't see it. Even when he's not named. He's behind the scenes of everything. Now there's one other thing I want you to know. And I put it in the little handout thing, the card. There is a Jewish feast called the Feast of Purim. P-U-R-I-M. And it means lot or lots. That's a feast they celebrate every year. And it's in what would be our march. And it comes from this book. It's because of this book that they... they and, and Purim is sort of like, almost like Halloween. For how people dress up and put on... In Feast of Purim, people dress up in other things. And they put on masks and things. And they play games and they give presents. And it's a big party. We'll see why as we go through the book. Let's meet the people. Okay, let's meet them. Here's the first one. The guy's name is Ahasuerus. He's actually Xerxes in history. He's the king of Persia. And when you see this guy, sometimes you look at him and you... And as we read this, sometimes you look at him and you say, He's, he's okay. He's okay. And then sometimes you look at him and you say, He is a complete idiot. Right? And sometimes you look at him and you say, He's so mean and sometimes you see him and you say he doesn't he doesn't care about anything and we'll see him as we go through this book second we meet Vashti she's the queen of Persia she's his wife and she's beautiful and we're going to see what happens to her she's only mentioned in this chapter because the king is having a party and he says uh go tell Vashti to come in here I want everybody to see how pretty she is and she won't come 
you usually, it's not a good idea to disobey the king. It's not usually a good idea, when he, even if you're the queen. But we're going to see what happens to her. The third person is Esther. Oh, when you think of Esther, every time I see that name, I always think of, of how sweet she is. That's just a, what I think about her. She was, she was beautiful because they picked all, I mean, they picked, they went around and they said, okay, she, get that girl, you, hey, you over here. You, you, here. And they rounded them all up all over the empire, not just in one city, not just in one province. The 127 provinces, they went through and picked out what they considered every beautiful young girl. And they brought them so that the king could go, let's see, which one do I want? And Esther was chosen. And when you read this book, there is a line for such a time as this. God raised her up for such a time as this, as they say. And let me tell you something about your life. You are not here by chance. You are not here by fate. God placed you on this earth at this time with your abilities, your gifts, your talents for such a time as this. Every one of us in this room are special and unique and could be used by God for his purposes. Let's see the next guy. Next guy, Mordecai. Some people call it Mordecai. I just I think it's just easier to say Mordecai. Uh, he's Jewish. He's he's he raises Esther. Esther is his uncle's daughter. And his uncle dies and Mordecai who is obviously older says, I will take care of this young girl. And so he's raising her. And when you see him, sometimes he's amazing. And sometimes you'd say, what's wrong with you? Can you are you not thinking? That's what we'll see as we go through this. And last but not least, Haman. I don't even like the name. Do you like the name? Say, say you don't like the name. It's a bad name. No, he's an evil, 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 evil man. And he's a prideful man, and he's an arrogant man. And he ultimately says, I will kill every Jew in the world, and he's going to get away with it. Because the king's going to let him. The Jewish people, when they have the Feast of Purim, they read the book of Esther. And as the crowd sits out there, every time the name Mordecai is read, they clap and cheer. And every time the name Haman is read, they hiss and boo when they read this book. This is one man that when he gets it, we'll all be glad. Let's think about Esther for just a second. Okay, let's think about her. Her Persian name really is Esther, Esther. It comes from Ishtar, one of the goddesses. So when you say the name Esther, that's really a Persian name. What is her real name? You know what her real name is? It's Hadassah. It's found in chapter 2, verse 7. That's her name, Hadassah, which means myrtle, like a myrtle tree. She's brought up by Mordecai. So Hadassah is her real name. But she's also called Esther, Esther, Ishtar. God is working to protect his people. Well, let's start verse by verse. Let's, let's go through it and we'll see what's going on. Let's begin in chapter 1. We see a party. And by the way, look, let me give you the date just so you have an idea. This is around the year 480 B.C. In other words, 480 years before Jesus. Okay? This is, Daniel's already lived and died. This is after Daniel. Okay? 
This is the Persian Empire, sometimes called the Medo-Persian Empire. It actually started off, the Medes and the Persians came together. Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian came together to form a nation that destroyed the Babylonian Empire. And Darius was the Mede leader, and then Cyrus took over. And now some 50 or 60 years have passed, and this man by the name of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, is ruling. What's going on? Look what we see. Look at verse 1. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from, Ethi- from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. By the way, Daniel lived here. Daniel lived under, not under this particular uh, ruler, but when the Babylonian Empire fell, Daniel was still alive, and Daniel took position in the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel was an amazing man. From age 13, 14, he was taken off into captivity and never returned home, but was a great leader. So th- this is the, the Medo-Persian Empire. A decree was found for them to go back, and the Jews didn't go back. A small amount of them, under Ezra and under Nehemiah and under a man by the name of Jerubbabel. Jerubbabel is the man who went back and built the temple with Ezra's help. Nehemiah is the one who went back and built the wall of the city. If you look on a map, and next week I'm going to bring you a map to show you this, where they're living is Iran. See, Iran is former Persia. When you say Iran and Iraq and all of these countries together over there, the nation of Iran is about where this is taking place. And Iran is big. It stretches. It stretches way north and it stretches way south and it stretches right to about uh, uh, the the Persian Gulf and at the north part of the Persian Gulf is the very end of what would be the Persian Empire that's why it's called the Persian Gulf and he's got a palace there notice verse 2 in those days as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne and the citadel was in Susa Susa is called Shushan it's actually you can find it on some maps and it's at the very southern end of the kingdom it was called his winter home he decides to give a party Notice, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants and the army officers of Persia and Media and the nobles and the princes of his province began being in his presence. He decided to have a party. The best that we can understand is that in about a 483 B.C., he decided that he was going to invade Greece because the Greco-Macedonian Empire was coming up. A guy by the name of Philip of Macedonia had come to power. He has a son who we know him as Alexander the Great. That's the Greek Empire's coming up. The Greek Empire's coming up. The Medo-Persian Empire under Xerxes, he's saying, I'm worried about those people. And so he decides to go to war. And so he brings in, if you notice, it doesn't tell us in this book, but it tells us in history that he brought in his princes and attendants and army officers and all of these people to bring them together to plan the war to go and defeat the Greeks. That's going to be the plan. Now you probably know that there was first the Assyrian Empire, then the Babylonians, then the Medo-Persian, then the Greco-Macedonians. So if you already figured it out, he didn't defeat the Greeks. The Greeks defeated him and came to world power. But here's what happened. 
he decides that he would bring everybody together and over six months he's trying to raise the power and to get everything ready to go to war. Look at verse 4. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. That's six months. And look what he did. The whole thing that he did was to point and display his riches and his power and everything about the kingdom. Here's what he wanted to do. Let me show you. He wanted to get all the people fired up. He wanted his leaders ready to go to war. He wanted to plan the war. And that's what they did over that six-month time period. He planned the war, and he wanted to get the backing because he noticed he had all the nobles and the princes. It takes money to go to war. And so he's getting it all together, and he's going to go to war. And then notice what happened. When the six months were over, verse 5, when these days were completed, the, the king gave a banquet which lasted seven days for all the peoples who were present at the, at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least in the court of the gardens of the king's palace. Now, let me give you a little history, okay? He gets it all together. At the end of six months, he brings them all together and decides to go to war. You can't tell it in this book. book doesn't even talk about the war. What we know from history, he decides to go to war, and he goes, and he has a victory at first over the Greeks, and then the Greeks come back and destroy every one of his ships, and he comes back home. And when we get to chapter 2, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, he goes to war and loses and comes back. Now, he's still the king. He still has the, the Medo-Persian Empire, but the Greeks are getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And eventually, under Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great, they take over the world. So this empire one day will fall, as they all do, except the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. When he sets up his kingdom, it'll never fall. So when the six months were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel of Susa from the greatest to the least, and he did it at the, in the garden. And then he describes it. Notice, there were hangings of fine, uh, of, of fine white and violet linen held on by cords of purple linen, silver rings, marble columns, couches of gold and silver. They had mosaic and marble and mother of pearl. And he's showing all of these riches. Why? Because he says, we've got the money. We're going to war. I want everybody to be behind us on this. And then he describes what was going on. He says, the drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds of golden cups. If you got a drink, it wasn't in, it wasn't in a, 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 you know, a, one of those red cups that we gave out. Remember those? It wasn't that. It was gold. A golden vessel of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's mouth. He said, give it to everybody. Everybody. And then notice verse 8. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household. He should do according to the desires of each person. What he's basically saying, drink all you want. Nothing to stop, nothing to compel you. Let anybody in this banquet get as drunk as they want to get. That's what he's saying. See, and that's what the flesh does. Flesh always says, gimme, 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 gimme. We want to fulfill the lust of the flesh. And by the way, uh, you, you can kill yourself. You can kill yourself. You can drink yourself to death. You can eat yourself to death. Uh, you can elicit sex yourself to death. I mean, it could all happen because when you left, if a person fulfills his lust of his flesh, it'll eventually kill him. That's what happens. So here's the party. He wants everybody on his side because he's going to go to war. You just can't tell it from the book of Esther. But now we meet the queen. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. 
Vashti had the separate feast. By the way, the men planned the war, women had their own back banquets. The only women, listen, you've got to understand this. In a normal banquet, if the men had a banquet, none of the, none of the queens or anybody else was there. The only women that would be there would be the, the concubines or the dancers. Regular women didn't go to that because it was bad. And so the queen had her own banquet. Well, he's got the banquet with all the men and the dancing girls and all that stuff. The queen has her own banquet for the wives of many of these great officials and leaders and everything else, and they're having their thing. Now, as we stop, I want to show you something, and we'll come back to it next week. I want you to see what happened. Verse 10. On the seventh day, the very end of the party, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. What does that mean? He's drunk. He commanded Mahuman, Bisthal, Harbona, Bigtha, Agabatha, Zephthar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. Now, the king had seven men that served him. And they were eunuchs, which you know what that means. They'd been castrated. They took men, and if they were going to serve with the king, they castrated them so that there would be no threat so that they wouldn't become a king and try to rule and start their own lineage. So they take these seven men, and they work for him. And here's what he says. He told them, he said, go get the queen. Verse 11. He told them to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown on in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. So you can see him go, hey, this is the, this is the best party we've ever had. So you go, go get the queen, bring her in here. I want everybody to see my queen. So they go, but, verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. You can see him going to her banquet and saying, look, the king wants you to come in there. And she said, you can tell him, I'm not coming. They went, what'd you say? He said, I'm not coming. <laughs> so they go back. The Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became what? Very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Now, he, he's trying to look good. And how good is he going to look when he commands his wife to come and she doesn't come? How are you going to command an army and conquer the world if your wife won't come when you call her? That's what it looks like. And he's going to bring in his advisors and say, what do you think we ought to do? And we're going to see what they say. It's amazing. This is the beginning of the events, and this is why we see that God raised up Esther for such a time as this. Let me give you some applications. First of all, God's in control. He is sovereign. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. He is the creator, sustainer, provider, protector. He is everything. So, A, here's what we do. We rest in the security that our God and Savior is in control. You don't have to be afraid when you wake up every day. We don't have to afraid when we go outside. We don't have to be afraid of what the future holds because we know who holds the future. We know who's working all things. We are not alone, and there's no such thing as chance or fate. We don't have to worry about sickness or crime or finances. We just have to trust Him. Now, we have to live righteously and godly, but you have to trust Him. And so, two things. Number one, 
Trust Him as Savior. I hope and pray that every one of you in this room, you've already put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. If you haven't, right where you're sitting right now, you understand Jesus died for you, He paid for your sins and rose again, and He offers as a gift eternal life. It's not our works or goodness. It's simply faith alone in Christ alone. And I hope and pray that if you've never trusted Christ right where you're sitting right now, you can put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The second aspect of this is trust Him as the sovereign ruler of all things. Trust Him day in and day out. He's our creator, sustainer, provider, protector. He works all things together for good. Those, it didn't say all things were good. He works all things together for good. B, trust God with our future. You going to make it through school? There's some of you in school and you, you're not sure you're going to make it. You got to trust Him. What about your job? What about getting a job? What about, are you going to get cancer? What about Alzheimer's? Are you going to have any money for retirement? Will you ever get married? Will you ever have children? We don't know what the future holds, but who can you trust? You've got to. He is, he's working all things. And see what's so amazing, you take your life right now and just look at your past. And you see the hand of God working in all things. And you say, well, what about here? Well, you think he's working here? You think he's going to be working here? Of course he is. God is in control. Trust him. Second, live our lives in obedience to God. We're the Jewish people in the book of Esther, obedient to God. What's the answer? They were not. We need to be obedient. The Jews are living in disobedience. They were supposed to go back to the land. We need to live in obedience. Are we doing God's will? Are we living according to the Scripture? Base our lives on the Word of God. Trust Him. So, two things. Yeah, here we go. Two things. Oh, I guess it. Know the Word and dig, apply the Word. Get into the scripture so you can know it, so you can see what God has for us, and we can make application in our lives because we want to live in obedience. We're not under a law system. It was a great song that Sky sang, and you know, sometimes people look at the Christian life and they think it's all these rules and everything. No, we are great freedom freedom to love, freedom to serve, freedom to live in God's power, freedom to obey the scripture, freedom to serve God not out of fear but out of love. And so when we live our Christian lives, it's not under a law system, it's under a grace system. So may we know the Word and live out the Word. May we live our lives serving Jesus Christ, knowing that God is working in all the events and circumstances of our lives. Let's pray.